You're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode 122, your weekly dose of retro gaming news, reviews, and interviews with me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And where is Dan Wood? Dan is feeling a little bit under the weather this week, and the show must go on, but he has got a little bit of... Speaking of Pac-Man Fever, we have got a great interview coming up with... Jerry Buckner. Now, Jerry Buckner is the co-creator of Pac-Man Fever. This was the first song that was ever made about video games. Make sure you stay tuned for that one. It's a great interview. Oh, it's really good, yeah, because it's not just about the 70s songs. He goes he goes to modern days, Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, he goes all the way from the 70s all the way up to Wreck-It Ralph and his time spent working with Disney, so really, really good interview. Oh, yeah, and we've got some weekend passes to be won as well, so you guys can win some passes to play Glasgow, which is a fabulous event going on in the Bremer Arena, and that's for the Saturday and Sunday. Is that June 9th and June 10th, I believe? That is indeed. And we've got our friend DJ Slopes going there. Yes, and uh, who else is going? Uh, Kim Justice as well. We've got, uh, I think it's the Glasgow Pinball Association. It's going to be a massive show. If you haven't been to these shows before, they're full of arcades everywhere. You've got good traders' halls, so take a lot of cash. A lot of retro <laughs> stuff to be bought, a lot of retro games to be uh, played. What, what did you pick up last time you were at a show, Joe? God, oh God, now you're asking all sorts. I think uh, nothing too big last time, but I still spent about £250, I think. Um, quite a few PS2 games, actually. Quite a few PS1 games. I'm trying to get a full Resident Evil collection oh, nice. at the moment. So, you know, like, you know, I have, like, Resident Evil 1 Platinum, and it's like, well, I don't actually have the original Black Disc version of that, so, you know, then go buy that kind of, you know. Well, well I'll, I'll keep my eye out keep in Glasgow eye out. for so, you. Ravi's going to be there. And you can enter uh, our competition to win tickets, and it's uh, it's just a entry competition there is no question or anything like this we're just going to pick a name out of the hat so if you go to the retrohour.com and check out the terms and conditions please enter our competition and you can get a free pass to saturday and sunday for play glasgow so we're giving away great prizes at the moment and competitions (laughs) we also have ways that you can support the show now i shared a picture earlier this week which was of these builds that I've been doing on the Raspberry Pi. Have you seen these online, Joe? Uh, was that through the Instagram page, was it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've seen them, yeah. So it's so cool. You can basically get a build that you can just flash onto your Raspberry Pi. So they have different sizes. They have okay. like 128 gigabyte wow. or yeah, a lot of games on there. Okay. Or 64 gigabyte. And you can just get your SD card straight away, write the image to it, put it in, everything loads up fine. All the configurations are done. All the games are already there. So it's all there ready made for you. All done. So all the hard got, work. You've not got to mess about downloading ROMs, putting them on there. None of that. The it's only thing for you. only thing I had a problem with was I have these Xbox wireless controllers. So I tried to get them working with yeah. it and it kind of didn't detect it with the Bluetooth. But you can just put a little command in on the Raspberry Pi that actually gets them to work nice on the new cool. one. Yeah. And how do we get a hold of them, Ravi? Well, you can look on YouTube and you can kind of search for Raspberry Pi builds because, uh, you know, there's um, a lot of games involved on them and stuff. So you can find them on certain sites and uh, I'd suggest YouTube and search for Raspberry Pi and then kind of go on recent. But also you can help us because we found this little build-your-own-Raspberry Pi kit, which is fantastic because I know a lot of people have seen these kind of NES minis that they buy and Mm -hmm. uh, these kind of, pre-built devices well this is a little raspberry pi that looks like a snaz 
Okay. And you've got all the items there. You, you get the Raspberry Pi free with it. You get the SD cards. You get two SNES controllers as I well. I say, you get the controllers as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and, where, this is, and where's that? This is all available on Amazon. But if you use us, you'll be helping out the show. So if you go to the retrohour.com and click on the Easter egg section, we will have a link to this Raspberry Pi build kit. And you order it from us and we'll get a little cut. There we go. And that always helps the show out. And uh, also what helps the show out is the amazing donations that our listeners give to us. Um, So we'd just like to say a couple of thank yous to the following people. Matthew Elms. Simon Pilgrim. Daniel Waddington. And Paul Terry. And remember, you guys, you can donate in any way you want to the podcast, and it all goes back to the running of the podcast. This enables us to do shows like this, but also to go to huge events all around the country and also get fantastic guests on the show. So please donate at theretrohour.com. You can just chuck it in. It's just a kitty. We don't mind any amount, any currency, digital, crypto, whatever. (laughs) You name it, we'll take it. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So let's go to the news and now... The first item I have on the news is Horizon Chase. Have you seen this game? So I'd never heard of this, and uh, Ravi linked it to me earlier on. And uh, so Horizon Chase Turbo, so just just correct me if I'm wrong, Ravi. So this was originally a game for mobile devices. Yeah, yeah, so this was a mobile device game. Now, this is very much in the kind of style of, like, you know, Lotus, yeah. uh, even Top Gear, yeah. which uh, was massively popular in yeah. South America. And uh, it's just fantastic. Like, me and my girlfriend downloaded it and we were meant to spend... Oh, fiancé, sorry. She's going to kill me. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. we were meant to spend um, kind of like, you know, 10 minutes playing on it and we had a five-hour session last night. And it's it's such a different game because you're you're actually looking at the horizon. This is the whole idea. You know, those old games, you you couldn't see forwards. Like Outrun, you know, and uh, like Super Hang On and stuff like that. Yeah, because you had no... It's coming towards... Yeah, you had no draw distance, right? Yeah, so this is exactly the same. It's in the vein of those games. And this is coming out, or is it already out on PC and PS4 It's already out on the PC and PS4, and it is around £14, which is not bad on the PC at all. And very addictive, you say. Very addictive, because you get into that mode where you're staring into the horizon and you're just banging it left and right. And it's like second nature. But also the graphics are really well done. But one of the main appeals for me is a guy we've had previously on the podcast, Barry Leach. Mm. He's done the soundtrack, and he did the soundtrack for Top Gear 2. Okay. Which is like massively popular in South America. So loads of the tracks on these are like Chile and Brazil and... My fiance was like, uh, she's from Brazil, so she was like, I need to unlock Brazil. I was like, oh, we've got to get another thousand points. <laughs> that and means we were, we've got to stay up for another hour. <laughs> yeah, and we sat there and we were just continually playing these tracks, trying to get first place. So I recommend this game to anybody that loves those old school, arcadey kind of races. I think it would be good in a massive cab. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine, yeah, you know, sitting there old school style in one of those kind of like, well, the ones which move around, you know, like a big afterburner. Obviously, it's not afterburner. Oh, yeah. Afterburner, but like one of those big arcade cabinets where you sit in it and it moves about. That would be fantastic. But it's kind of in that vein. So make sure you check it out. Definitely. And we're talking about a piece of modern tech. But I found this really interesting because we mentioned this before, which is accessibility for disabled users. And now a lot of users 
who don't have as much abilities as other people would in previous years, in the kind of 80s and the 90s, they'd get a lot of help and there'd be a lot of support for accessibility stuff. But as touchpads have come out and all these little fiddly devices, it's mm. really hard for anybody with disabilities to actually play any modern titles unless they're using a third-party kind of controller. Okay. So... Microsoft had launched a disability-friendly Xbox controller, right? And it's kind of like nice big controller, two big touchpads with all the buttons on it. But then the interesting thing is it's got 19, is it 19 ports or something like that? Yeah, it? so it has, if you look at the picture at the very bottom, it yeah. has kind of all these different accessories. So they yeah. can be like, you know, foot pedals, stuff like that, yeah. stuff that you control with your elbows and... I've even remember seeing people with stuff that you blow in, and that yeah, would they, they, uh, kind it's of got a puff and sip uh, controller as well. Yeah. So, yeah. and this is all accessible. Is this out now? Then is it? Yeah, it's just coming out, and uh, basically, Microsoft seemed to be one of the first big companies to do this. I know they're yeah. really good with Apple with the accessibility, yeah, and stuff. But I think this is really important to cover, and it's really interesting because as virtual reality gets bigger and stuff it enables people to kind of experience go out. these things yeah, go out experience, experience more. this as well and you know not just limit it limit it to you know one demographic this you know a lot of, you know a lot more people be able to play these things and experience these things now um so and they're all programmable as well joe so you can kind of pick one bit and go yeah. okay i want this as my preference to be the fire button and i want this to do this that's brilliant and you the know. fact that it's not third party you're not going to it's official. It's official. Microsoft. There'll be no lag. through the Microsoft stores, digital stores. And it says here it's going to retail for $99, which is £73.50 for us. I think that's great. And maybe you could get some of your retro games on there that you, you couldn't play on well, the Xbox go. One store and then there play them go. with these new pieces. Well, there you go. Well, that kind of brings us on to our next piece. So there is a new game. Well, we spoke about it a couple of times. You guys have spoken about it a couple of times. Coming out, is it... It's going to be next week now. Well, this is particularly exciting for you, Joe, isn't it? It is particularly exciting. So the new Sega Classics game is coming out. Yeah, totally. And we are joined by DJ Slopes. And you've been doing some amazing stuff with Sega, we hear. I know. It's so amazing to have other people say that to me. Just hearing that is so cool. Yes, yes, I have been working with Sega, which is the... Probably the ultimate dream come true. Uh, as I'm such a massive Sega fanboy, I don't, I don't care. I'll admit it, you know. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I have been working with Sega recently. Um, uh, as I working with, you know, helping promote the the upcoming Mega Drive Classics Collection. I'm very, very envious. I'm going to use the word envious because I don't want to take that away from you. <laughs> but that is a uh, huge accomplishment. Even, you know, like you say, working working with, working alongside, that's absolutely fantastic. So, mm. the new Sega, uh, new Sega Classics, is it called? Genesis Classics? Yes, the, the, the Sega Mega Drive uh, Classics in the UK and obviously the, the Sega Genesis Classics in America for yeah. PS4, Xbox One and Steam. So, straight away, my dying question because i haven't seen an awful lot about it and i'm mm -hmm. sitting on the show and stuff massive sega fanboy what's the main difference from the canada the last edition for xbox 360 and ps3 because i've got that and that's a brilliant compilation what's the kind of straight away like one or two key differences which make it a lot better okay so uh it's been a while since i've looked at that uh xbox 360 ps3 one in all honesty but i don't believe the treasure games are on there which is the one that got me very very excited Star heroes etc um, 
Oh, yeah. So we're looking at Gunstar Heroes, Alien Soldier, Dynamite Heady, um, what else? Uh, Landstalker as well. So, you know, for, I mean, actually, I don't know much about Landstalker, so I'm excited to, you know, even for me to try out some new Mega Drive games that I, I sort of dismissed back in the day. I mean, that sounds amazing because straight away, Alien Soldier, straight away, to be able to oh, play that yes. and not have to spend, you know, well, one emulate it or spend hundreds of pounds is actually pretty well pretty there's, good. there's two versions isn't there is there um well uh, sort of basically there's a few of the games not all of them i say um top of my head roughly about eight yeah. eight or ten or so games on and that disc um, that let you there. play different regions right so alien soldier has the both the uh well, the Powell or the NTSC uh, version. Oh, it'd be the Powell because it didn't come out in America. Yeah. So the the Powell version and the uh, the Japanese version of the game. So you get that, and I, I think I can sense that that the you know being a bit faster with that sixty hertz that mm. sort of thing. And it's the same with Rystar. That's a Japanese and um, uh, uh, UK or NTSC version as well. Yeah. Uh, Streets of Rage two and three. Yeah, that's one ones. of the things I've heard. You can play bare knuckle, you know, bare knuckle three and stuff. So it's original kind of kind of copy um, oh yes yeah so does that actually have all the uh the differences you know like with who the oh yeah it's, it's completely the it's 100 percent the japanese version of the game That's um amazing. like different title screen the text is all you know completely in japanese so you can't read anything but you know you're playing it how it should be played brilliant so definitely worth kind of picking up and uh kind of moving on to a well the next kind of gen version of it really then rather than oh yeah absolutely because of me, Ravi, and Dan, we actually play the 360 version every Christmas at mine, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be this version. You don't have to wait till Christmas because there's online play. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Um, I haven't tested it out because there was no one online yeah. <laughs> when I tried it. But um, I, I went on there and it was searching for people to play whilst I was playing the games. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's online play. There's loads of filters that, you know, are very, you know, standard for, you know, mm. typical emulation um, machines and whatever else. So, you know, you can smooth the edges if, if that's your thing. For me, I'm, I'm all about pixel perfect. Um, what else can I talk about? Uh, you know, funky borders. You know, I can have like a Streets of Rage skyline border or I can have the Sonic checkered border. Border, or I can have a make it look like a jazzy, looks really good with Toe Jam and L funky border. You know all these sort of different things. Yeah. I can. There's something called mirror mode. So um, mirror mode is literally they flip the screen, uh, but the controls. You know when you go left, you're still going towards the left on the screen. So they fix so, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which sounds like an absolute gimmick, and let's be honest, it pretty much is. But uh, I tried it out just to see what it was about, and I was playing Sonic, and instantly I was fine with it. But when you play Sonic two which i think i've mastered sonic 2 i've played that game a million times um when you go into the special stages <laughs> you yeah. know you're, you're you're going up you know in the left yeah. in the, uh, the the half pipe looking thing yeah 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 it messes with your mind because you think oh it's on the left no no it's on the right it's like completely throws you so it's quite exciting to play around with that sort of stuff you know well oh, okay. i completely love the idea of these new pieces of technology being implemented into the old game so stuff like mm. online play and you know having borders and just having it upscaled even to have it on your machine, it's great. All these extra features that you'd never get if you had the original cut. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure they're not absolutely 100% perfect emulation, but for the fact, I mean, this game is, I think it's like a £25 game. There's over 50 games on there, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, including, like, you know, the Japanese and the English. It's, yeah, it's, I, I think it's a brilliant little compilation myself. Well, um, you're doing a video, aren't you, to kind of explore these packs? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, I'm talking about it every so often when I do a complete history uh, that, that, you know, has a game that mentions it. So I've just done Alien Soldier and I talk a little bit about that version on the disc. Um, I've just done one where I've talked about the top 10 games I'm most looking forward to playing on the disc. So I look into, oh, I'm looking forward to playing Streets of Rage 3 because now I get to play Bare Knuckle 3, you know, that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But I'm also going to do a proper review when the game comes out as well. Oh, well, we'll direct all our listeners to that. And thank you so much for coming on. No, no worries. Thank you for having me. And I think it's really amazing that Sega are kind of releasing these packs, but with cool new features. Absolutely. It's good to know that they're recognising what the fans want and uh, that they recognise that there is still fans out there. And also even, you know, hiring fans to kind of, you know, work alongside with them, make sure that this is kind of getting out, that people know about it. And also that, like, you know, that it's kind of being created by the fans as well. Well, well they've started sense. doing that, haven't they? So, like, Christian Whitehead doing that, Sonic Mania. Say, you know? Sonic Mania. You know, now they're reaching out to these YouTubers, these massive fanboys. So it's great just to kind of see Sega is still doing that, still sticking to their guns, still sticking to their roots. And, and going for their exact target audience, aren't they? You know, Absolutely. the people that love Sega. Absolutely. And not just churning out a repeat of something that came out you know on the previous generation you know this has got 50 games on it it's got all the treasure games on it like gunstar heroes yeah i don't know how many times i've had like atari classic packs and absolutely the same you know (laughs) know. there's only so many times you can play streets of rage or well actually that's a lie i love streets of rage but there's only so many different versions of streets of rage you can play but now finally you know we can actually sit down and play bare knuckle we can play in its original japanese form so really looking forward to that That's so cool. Well, talking of something else cool, have you heard of The Wonder? No. No? Okay, (laughs) well, I'm I'm surprised actually because there's been a lot of news about this and um, it's pretty interesting. The Wonder has been kind of put through as this uh, switch killer. Right, okay. And it's an Android um, kind of platform that's uh, portable and everything. But the whole thing is, the whole thing about it is there's no product... There's actually uh, nothing's been created. Um, it's total vapor at the moment. But because one person made an article that said it's a switch killer, everyone else has copied that. How many times has that been said though? This is the Game Boy killer. This is the yeah. DS killer, and all this is is an article. So we've not got anything else. No, it's, 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 it's an announcement. There, there was a tiny little kind of announcement, and everywhere, all these news organisations, you know, Tech Radar, everyone started repeating the switch killer the switch killer and it reminds me a lot of the ouya do you remember the yeah well yeah the short-lived ouya yeah ouya that was meant to be this android console that was going to be amazing and everyone hyped it up so much and then dan got one and said oh it's a bit slow isn't it (laughs) (laughs) that was it It was all downhill from there (laughs) well we've got a link to a really interesting article in forbes which tells you everyone's writing about a nintendo switch competitor that doesn't exist. So Brilliant. So as always, all the articles for today's news stories will be in the show notes. Definitely. And we are going to now bring you our wonderful guest, Jerry Buckner, the creator of Pac-Man Fever. Enjoy. Thanks for listening, guys. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and this is our interview with Jerry Buckner. Hi, Jerry, and what was your first gaming experience? Oh, boy. The first computer game that I ever saw uh, was a, the, you know, the Pong games where you, pretty basic stuff where it had a little dot and, you know, it was mm. like ping pong and it went back and forth with the Pong things. 
that was the first thing back then i was playing in a band you know we were playing a lot of local bars and stuff and they had one of those pong games and we just went nuts for it and you put we're putting quarters in you know to this game which now is you know nobody would even care about it but i remember that was my first experience uh, with with the video games but then eventually we ended up uh, playing at a resort uh this is probably 80 maybe one 80 81 and they had an asteroid machine there and every break we were going over and playing that asteroid machine and i mean it got to where we were spending half our pay on that stupid machine you know right um but that's that's that would have probably been the second part. The, my first time I ever saw Pac-Man uh, was in a we were Gary and I were working on some jingles at a studio up in Marietta, Georgia, just north of Atlanta. And we went over to have dinner on there's a square there and they have a couple restaurants. And so we went over there to have uh, some dinner and we walk in and there's this Pac-Man machine. This is 1981, probably summer of 81, maybe fall. And we didn't know what it was, but people were playing it. So we started playing it. Well, we got hooked like everybody else. And, um, and it just, just got crazy. And we were playing all the time. Were you in a musical family or were you raised in a musical environment? I was, uh, my, uh, music kind of ran in the family. My father, uh, was a gospel singer. Uh, my mother sang in the choirs and so forth, but my dad, uh, sang, uh, was a singer and professional for a while. Um, and, my grandmother, I guess, uh, played piano or whatever, but I, it just came natural to me to play piano. And, um, uh, my, my dad, my, I was home when I was about eight or nine and my mom was in the kitchen and she was, uh, doing stuff and whistling or humming some song. And I heard her humming it. So I went over to the piano. My dad had bought this old junk. I don't say junk, but this old upright piano, cause he was going to take lessons. He thought it would, you know, to help him to be able to play in the group and, and all that. And I went over the piano and I just started listening. To my mom just started playing the song, you know, because I could, I could, uh, I could hear it. And uh, she was amazed by that. So when my dad came home, she said, uh, "Come in here and listen to this." And she made me sit out the piano and she says, "Play that song." And it was "Sentimental Journey," an old song from the '40s. And uh, so I played it, and my dad said, "Okay, you're taking the lessons instead of me." So that's kind of how it started for me. That's actually really impressive. So. So you just kind of had that ability just to kind of hear hear kind of a tune and just straight away just kind of pluck it out of the air and play it. Yeah, I, I, I can hear it and play it. It's just nothing that I've ever done. It's just, you know, something that uh, my brain, you know, is able to do. Um, and the same thing with records. When I listen to records, I can hear all the parts. Of course, that's pretty common with people in the business, especially if you're a producer or a writer. But I, I can hear all the individual parts. And uh, uh, so it kind of came from all that. So at what point did you kind of think to yourself, oh, okay, you know, I've got this ability. At what point did you kind of start writing your own tunes? I had uh, a kid across the street from me had a little drum set, not much of a drum set, but uh, he came over and uh, we would fool around and he would, you know, play a little bit on his drums and I play piano. And so I wrote a song. You'll laugh at this. Uh, I did it. I called it. Uh, it was Mary Had a Little Lamb, the, uh, <laughs> the song that we all know yeah. so well as kids. And I jazzed it up a little bit. I called it Mary, Mary, uh, uh, Mary's Rock and Lamb, or some kind of stupid title. <laughs> and uh, that was a song. And then I wrote an instrumental thing called "Hold Tight." I don't know what the title meant. That was the two songs that we uh, that we had, and uh, as as a little combo group there, or not combo, but just two piece. And uh, funny story is a girl at school 
was having a party and I would, this was, this would have been in junior high school and she was having a party and she found out that, uh, you know, that we, I played piano or somehow that we had what she thought she thought was a band and she had a piano at her house. So we show up, we bought sweaters alike and we show up there and, uh, there's this pianos there and the place is full of kids. So we go in and she says, okay, you know, uh, this is, you know, Jerry and Charlie, you know, blah, 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 play. So we sit down and, and we play our songs and, you know, we were pretty well, well received, but after two songs, we didn't have anything else. And she said, <laughs> she goes, aren't you going to play any more? And we said, well, we don't know any other songs. Oh, okay. So then they turned the record player on and that was the end of us. <laughs> <laughs> was that their one and only gig then? <laughs> That was our first gig, and it uh, you know it lasted uh, like you know ten minutes. That was it. So, how did you and Gary Garcia meet? Gary and I met in school. Uh, we, uh, we he went to a different grade school than I did, but then we went to the same junior high. They you know fed us into a bigger school, and we met there. We didn't do a whole lot in junior high, and then in high school, uh, he got a silver tone guitar and started playing some, and uh, and and got a kid on drums and. He called his group Biggie and his Rat. Uh, I don't know what that meant. But anyway, uh, I remember after school, they had an assembly, and, and Gary, Biggie and his Rat played uh, after the assembly. And I, they did two or three songs, and I was duly impressed by this. And so, you know, eventually we started uh, working together. There was a little studio in Akron, and uh, where we were from, Akron, Ohio. And so we, we kind of met up there, and the guy that owned the studio kind of put us together. Um, so we started, that's where we started, but it would be a while before we had any kind of success, but that's where we started. Okay. So how did you, what did you do at first? So is that kind of where the jingles came from and stuff, or was it straight into kind of like working as a band or? Well, in still in Akron, uh, there's a, a guy that I had met and he had some pretty good professional equipment, mm. uh, four track stuff. So we, we were able to get a little place. Uh, to set up equipment and put a little studio together, this little hole in the wall place close by where we live. And, uh, you know, we would go in there and, and uh, you know, work on songs and everything. But, uh, I mean, I'd stay up half the night. I was working at a music store in the daytime, which I hated, but I had to make a living because I was married and had a little, a little girl at the time. So we decided that we needed to do jingles or something to try to uh, make some money. So we, we did a couple jingles up there. And I remember we did, there was a place called uh, Nelson's Stag Shop. There was two or three of these places. It was the hip place to buy clothing. And so this DJ at a local radio station, we hooked up with him, and, and he would give us these uh, leads, you know, like for businesses, and we would come up with a jingle, and, and, and we sold a couple like that. But we didn't get much money. And I remember sitting in a McDonald's. I was broke. I, had, I, I was able to buy a 19-cent orange drink, and I'm sitting there. And on the radio comes this Nelson Stagshot commercial that they just ran in the ground. I mean, you'd hear it every day for like three years. I remember thinking, man, I got screwed on this. I mean, you know, these guys are using this. But that's that's where Gary and I began to work on on that stuff. But uh, we we didn't start to work we didn't start to work seriously on any of this stuff until Gary. I moved to Atlanta in '73, and then Gary moved down after that. And that's where we really got together and started working together on jingles and songs. Well, you mentioned uh, that you kind of felt a bit ripped off with that. Um, what was the music industry like at the time? Were many people getting ripped off and kind of uh, bad record contracts and stuff? Well, certainly a lot of people did. In the 50s, it was a lot worse, I think, in the 50s. Uh, those artists, uh, they, I mean, I've talked to many of them, and, 
and they really got screwed. I mean, they wouldn't hardly get any any royalties on their records. They could only make money in person. Uh, so it was kind of rough there. But yeah, it was still even into the uh, even into the seventies and and eighties. Uh, the record companies certainly would screw you any any way they can. Even on our record, uh, they have you know what you ever heard of something called cleans? Uh, no. Okay, cleans is a that was a term used for um, back in the 80s, 70. Well, they did it all the time, 60s, 70s, 80s. When records would come back, like they you know, say you got a hit and then records go out and um, they don't sell all of them, so they, they would come back. Well, they would count these, uh, count the records, and of course they would, they would give you a, a bad count. And the second thing they would do is they would sell them out the back door to, uh, you know, underworld characters who would then distribute them and sell them. And that's why they call them cleans, because, you know, we never got the artists. Nobody got any money for them because they went out the back door. And another way they did that is that the, the companies that would press the records like CBS Records would have several pressing plants, pressing stuff for them. And, you know, it was very easy for these guys to if you're, you know, you're pressing up 100,000 uh, Buckner Garcia albums. Well, you know, do 25,000 more and we'll sell them out the back door. And that was called clean. So that happened. So we, we were all victims of those sorts of things. Well, I remember when the arcades came around. I, I wasn't there at the time, but I remember seeing footage of Space Invaders and the kind of craze around Space Invaders with all these people doing synchronized Space Invaders style dances in Japanese clubs. Well, what was the culture like uh, when Space Invaders came out? It was uh, just the, the whole video game thing was just craziness. Um, I mean, it just uh, I don't know how to describe it. it they many people said uh, in, in fact, they said this about our record uh, and, and don't take this the wrong way. We're I'm not equating ourselves to Beatles. But what I'm saying is the excitement over video games and, and, and our album and the songs and that whole environment at that time. Uh, like the radio set, when our record first got played on the radio, they had they had so many requests. They had to play it twice in the same hour, which radio stations back then would never do that. But it was that kind of a thing. And people would put quarters. They would stand in line with quarters stacked up to play these games, uh, Space Invaders, uh, Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, all those. And it was just, you know, they had every mall, every everybody had a game room, video, you know, game room. And it was just um, overdose, man. I mean, it, they, people were just crazy into these games. So is that kind of what made you decide to kind of write the, you know, write the classic song, Pac-Man Fever? Actually, what happened, as I was mentioning, we, uh, we were working on some jingles. That's uh, how we were making our living at that time here in Atlanta. Mm. And so when we were eating dinner at this uh, restaurant and we started playing this game, the idea came to us that, you know, if we could do a song about this game, and maybe we could get some play locally and it would help our jingle business. That's kind of how we originally looked at it, you know, and uh, we never dreamed it was going to do what it, you know, what it did. But uh, I think one of the reasons for that is Gary and I, we were pop songwriters. We we've before then and after have written songs for other people, too. But the way we approached it was we tried to write a song that would be a good pop song by, on its own. But of course, you know, we had to add the elements of the game sound effects and all that because that's what it was about. But I think there was there was pack there was video game songs all over the place. Everybody put them out. Even Weird Al had had a game song out. Do you uh, think uh, this was kind of the uh, America starting to fall in love with Japanese culture and uh, led to stuff like you know Karate Kid later on and all the kind of kung fu obsession? 
Yeah, you know how we are in this country. You know, we get crazy on something and we just, you know, burn it out. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just nuts. Um, how did you capture the arcade sounds then for the um, actual track itself of Pac-Man? Well, as you know, uh, now, I mean, you can, you know, get sounds anywhere you want. You can hook into anything. Back then, uh, they literally, the engineer had to go into the game rooms. In fact, Pac-Man Fever... The sound effect for that record was taken off of a machine in a delicatessen um, during a, you know, right after lunchtime. And, and originally there was a little bit of noise. Uh, and there's always been kind of a story that you can hear somebody ordering a ham sandwich. I, I, I don't hear that. But uh, but we had they had to literally record them off of the games because there was no way to get the sounds any other way. Is there anything today? that you could find kind of like compare to the craze of like the arcades, Pac-Man and, you know, Space Invaders back then? Or is it just not like that anymore? You know, we've kind of like, you know, everybody's kind of glued to social media and their phones and stuff. Do you think there's anything that's kind of comparable to those kind of crazes in well, the 70s I, I would and say 80s? For this con- I would say for this country, I would say uh, the video thing was equal to the English, as we call the English invasion of all the English music back in the 60s. Mm. Uh, I, I think I think that it would be similar to that. Uh, maybe not as big, but I mean, it was that kind of a thing. It was just so huge. In fact, we did a show uh, in New York. We had to do a, uh, a TV show, television show on uh, on uh, what was that cable? Oh, gosh. Uh, I forget the name of uh, it was one of the big cable shows for kids. Um, I can't think of it. Anyway, uh, this show is kind of like a talk show. They had hosts and they had but they had like teenagers in the audience and they would ask them kind of like a Phil Donahue thing where they would ask them questions and they would pick out a particular topic for their shows. Well, this one was about, uh, you know, video games. And um, they had invited uh, a variety of people, including us, to be on the show. And they had uh, a couple of actresses from TV shows. They had uh, uh, a couple of dancers. They had a variety of people. Well, they also, there was this group of women who had formed a anti-video game uh, organization because the kids were spending all their time in the you know, arcades and spending all these quarters. And so they were very upset about this. And uh, so they be they got a little bit of press, so they were all hopped up, you know, and they were going around the country doing interviews and stuff. Well, they invite them in, so we're all stuck in this. And he also invited uh, uh, some of the, the executives from the game companies, Nintendo, and some of these companies. And we're all stuck in this green room, you know, waiting to go on this live TV show. Well, there was I think three women from this uh, anti-video game uh, <clears throat> group. They get into it with the uh, with the guys from the video companies. You know, they start arguing with them, and uh-huh. this this whole thing goes on. Well, Gary and I are sitting there, and we're looking at each other, thinking if they find out who we are, they're gonna you know probably hurt, kill us, you know, because <laughs> we really promoted. Well, the funny thing is, they argue and argue, and then finally they stop for a minute, and I'm sitting next to one of the women, and she turns around, looks at me, and she says, "Are you one of the guys? Aren't you one of the guys that did that Pac-Man record?" And I, you know, reluctantly said, well, yeah. Well, she leans over and she says, can you do me a favor? Uh, can you give me an autograph? My daughter has your record and loves it. Can I get your autograph? <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure. And they were nice to us. And then they went out on national TV and tore up these other guys, you know, these video guys. When you ori- originally kind of launched the single, um, what was the music industry's attitude towards it? Did they embrace it or was it kind of rejected? They, they, no, they hated it. They didn't, they didn't understand it. They didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, there was a, a management company here in town called Bowie Geller Organization, and they had two or three uh, acts, big acts. They had the Atlanta Rhythm Section. They had uh, 
Alicia Bridges, who did uh, I Love the Nightlife and <clears throat> a couple other acts. So they they had some, you know, they had some stuff going. So we went over there and uh, told them about it. Well, they let us record the song. They liked it. And we did. They sent that song to probably 20, 25 record companies. Nobody wanted it. They didn't understand what it was. But what happened is um, one of the executives uh, at CBS Records, uh, he took some of the stuff home, demos to listen to, and his kid heard our song <clears throat> and started playing it over and over and over. So he thought, well, wait, what's this, you know? So uh, they uh, they call they call up and start talking. Well, at the same time, a local radio station here uh, played the song, as I said, in the morning show. And they called our manager and said, you guys have a smash. The phones are blowing out, you know, people calling like, we, you know, all they want to hear is this record. So that combined together, they flew in from uh, CBS Records, flew in and, and made a deal <clears throat> right away with us. And then years later, several of the uh, record company people claimed that we had never sent that record to them. They would have bought it, but we never sent it. Well, they all got it. I got the reje I got rejection letters here. I saved a bunch <laughs> of them. You know? That's brilliant. So were you surprised at the success then? So it sounds oh, like, yeah, it's kind I, of like one of those. We, we were just blown away by the success, just blown away by it. It's like one of those twists of face. Then, if it wasn't for that young that young boy, yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's funny how things uh, can happen. Um, the stars got to align a certain way sometimes. Uh, but uh, I tell you what really helped with the record in, in this country was TV at that time. Of course, now TV doesn't have the same impact with you know with uh, streaming and everything. <clears throat> Excuse me, but uh, there was a show called Entertainment Tonight. It was a big show on at seven o'clock at night, a celebrity show, you know, where they talked about everything going on and they talked about our record and interviewed us and, um, and put the record on the air and stuff. And after that, it just went nuts. I mean, it just, we would get calls. It was not unusual to get a call from, uh, you know, 60 minutes, uh, ABC, NBC, any of these places calling us to interview us and talk to us about the, about our record and why we did it and everything. And it just exploded. Literally, and the TV really, really helped it at that time. Well, you guys must have known your stuff because I've heard a lot of kind of modern uh, tunes about video games, and they're awfully inaccurate. But you mentioned stuff like the patterns and all the details with Pac-Man. Uh, did you kind of do a lot of research for it? Well, that's <laughs> that's an interesting question. We uh, when after CBS bought uh, bought the record, then they said we got to have an album like right away. And this was the single was out in the fall of 81 into Christmas. So we started on this album um, uh, right around Christmas, <clears throat> Christmas time. And at the same time, we had another record out. There was a TV show here called uh, WKRP in Cincinnati. And the guy that sang that was from Atlanta. Well, we made a deal with another record company with this guy and they had us doing an album with him. So we're we're doing like trying to do two albums at one time. And of course, the Pac-Man thing was we knew was much, much more important. So what we would do is we would go out at night. We'd pick out a, you know, a video game arcade and go in there and talk to the kids or whoever. Or it was a bar, go in there and find out which game was happening at the time. And then we would find somebody that knew how to play it. And we'd watch them and talk to them. And we'd be up, you know, half the night uh, researching and talking and doing all this. Well, then Gary... Uh, we would go back home and I would usually come up with the hook part of the song musically and maybe the verse parts musically and all that. And then Gary would, would uh, take part of my lyrics and he would do the lyrics. So it was kind of a 50, 50 thing. And 
so we would then go in the studio that next afternoon with about two hours sleep and and record because we had to get the album done right away so this is we did this for a couple of weeks i mean it was you know really uh i remember we was finishing it up on uh on new year's day uh we were doing the final mixes on a song and we were just exhausted you know it was it was nuts but that's how we did it you plan to follow up with et i love you and you even got a permission from steven spielberg what happened there then Oh my gosh, that that's such a uh, that's a bad story for us. Um, went to see the movie when it came out that summer. Now this is back before movies and merchandising was doing a, a whole lot together. And I saw the movie myself, and I went back and told everybody what a great movie it was. So everybody, the manager and Gary, we all went one night and saw the movie. So we sat up all night, and I had been working on a song. I had I had a Iris said her dog I loved, and she had gotten sick and, and had passed away. And I had been doodling around the piano, you know, trying to uh, channel my uh, uh, sadness through a song. And it occurred to me that we could probably use this song for, for E.T. So we worked on the lyrics all night and did the song. Well, our manager flew to New York and met with uh, Mickey Eisner and all those guys at CBS and played the song. And everybody thought it was a smash, you know, and it was a, a, I mean, we thought it was a pretty good, you know, pretty good ballad song, you know, and it, and we thought this will really help us uh, to, to move into a second album and maybe get into, you know, regular pop songs so we can have, you know, a long career. Well, when they, Arnie had to fly, our manager had to fly out to, to California to meet with Spielberg and them uh, to get permission for all this stuff. And when he got out there, he told us, he said that he, they went into Spielberg's office. He said Spielberg took the record and he said he played it over and over. He said he must have played it, I don't know, 10, 15 times. He said 20 times. And he said just as loud as he could do it. And so Arnie, <clears throat> Arnie says, calls us and he goes, man, I think Spielberg is considering recalling the movie to put this song in the movie. Because he said, Spielberg said, I wish John Williams, who had done the sound score for E.T., I love you, or E.T., the movie. He said, Spielberg said, I wish John Williams had done this song in the movie. So Arnie said, I think they're going to recall the movie, which is, you know, it'd be unbelievable, you know, for Spielberg to do. So uh, everything, all of a sudden, uh, we couldn't, we didn't get phone calls returned. It just like everything cut off. And Arnie, they, they could, we couldn't figure out what's wrong. Everything was going so well. Well, as it turns out, uh, Neil Diamond had had written this song Heartlight. I don't know if you ever heard that one. And, uh, and of course, he was a very big artist at the time at CBS and had a lot of, you know, weight, carried a lot of weight there. So what they did is they shelved our song to put out his song instead. And we were going to sue him. And it, it was a big mess. Uh, our song, eventually, they, they put our song out uh, towards the end of the summer. And years later, I met this guy who was a DJ. He said he'd been working in California. And he goes, you know, he said, I played that record. We got that record in. He said, we played it. And it was a number one requested song every night for two weeks. And I, he said, I kept telling the, the CBS guy, this song is a hit. And he said, so one day he finally says to me, look, man, forget about this record. It's dead. It ain't going to be happening. You know, forget about it. Quit playing it. It's done. So they, they really they buried it uh, and, and, you know, and did the Neil Diamond thing. So that really was a bad experience for us. And, and that in fact, that is why we uh, wanted out of our contract at CBS eventually. And, 
and, and got out of that contract. We were going to go to RCA, but that didn't happen. But, uh, yeah, so the ET record, uh, kind of a sore spot. So the, um, uh, the follow-up do the Donkey Kong, was that a choice of you guys to do, or was it the record company uh, saying, well, do this tune? A great, yeah. a great question. Um, no, it was not our choice. Uh, there's this, Have you heard Frogger on there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Frogger, it, we all thought Frogger would be a better second single, but, uh, you know, the record company didn't agree, and, you know, they ruled, so they put that one out, and it, you know, it didn't do a whole lot. Um, of course, you know, how do you follow a record like Pac-Man that's so huge, but I think the Frogger, a lot of people still like Frogger, and I think it would have done a lot better, but uh, that was not our choice. Yeah, Frogger was our choice. So uh, during this time, obviously you mentioned, uh, you know, in talks with Steven Spielberg, etc. During this time, did you and Gary meet a lot of famous people, or was it kind of like the management who got to meet them and stuff? Or we got to meet a lot of people. There was a guy uh, that had hits back in the '50s called Freddie Boom Boom Cannon. Have you ever heard of that guy? No, never heard of that one. Okay, yeah, it's probably way past you guys. Uh, well, Freddie had a bunch of hits, Palisades Park and Transistor Sister. He had a ton of big records in the 50s. Well, uh, he came to Atlanta, uh, you know, he was in his 60s at the time, but he was working with Frankie Avalon. You probably heard of Frankie Avalon. It was Frankie and, uh, you know, and, and Freddie and a couple guys. Anyway, they, they came to the Fox Theater here to do some shows, and they, uh, Freddie Cannon called our management company and said, I really would like to meet those guys. So we really didn't know why, but it was a big deal to us because we had, as you know, we were kids, but we remembered his records. So to us, it was kind of a big deal to meet him. So we went down to, to meet him and um, <laughs> i never forget, we're all backstage and we were also with, with a guy named Tommy Rowe. Tommy was with the Beatles. You remember Tommy, you might, you might have heard that song or, the, or that name. You remember Tommy Rowe? Yeah, I, I heard. Was he the guy that was meant to be the fifth Beatle or... Yeah, he was. Yeah. Uh, he he toured with the Beatles before they hit here. He and tried to uh, actually tried to get a company here in town uh, to to uh, sign them, and the company in town didn't do it. Big mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> uh, but Tommy was there too. Anyway, we're backstage, and Freddie's saying to us, he goes, "Hey, man," he said, "I could have done that record. I could that could have been a hit for me." And we're thinking, "Well, yeah, I mean, you know, back in the fifties, but I mean, that, that's not going to be a hit for you, you know. I mean, you know." Well, anyway, the funny thing is, he said, you know, we were all going to go get something to eat. And he goes, well, wait a minute. I got to find Frankie and get my money. And he's chasing Frankie Avalon down the street to get his money. It was like, you know, like you guys are supposed to be professional. You know, it's like a bunch of guys playing out of a bar band or something. But, uh, yeah, we worked with Huey Lewis. We worked with... uh, uh, Shana Easton, we worked with, you know, got to meet Shana was at the Beverly Hills Hotel. We were staying there. Uh, we did a bunch of shows in California and she had her door cracked open and was in kind of singing and warming up, you know. And so we talking to her and, you know, she was doing some of the American Bandstand shows. But uh, yeah, we did. You know, we, we, we got to meet a lot of uh, a lot of different people. It was fun. I also hear you uh, got to meet the inventor of Pac-Man as well. Oh, boy. Now that was an experience that happened just a couple of years ago in Chicago. And uh, there was a like a 35th anniversary big uh, big deal because uh, Nintendo was out of Chicago, and they had us come up there. So we did. Uh, anyway, he he was there, and uh, they had a film crew with them from Japan. They were filming the whole thing. Well, he could not speak hardly any English, but uh, we were actually played a little bit of a show there. They had us play a little bit. Uh, 
uh, of the song and stuff. And we had a kind of a video, half video, half live thing. Anyway, he shows up on the dance floor out there dancing, you know, dancing around. <laughs> and so uh, w- later on, we, we had to do a, 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 a question and answer thing uh, sitting, you know, people can ask us questions. Yeah, like know. a and a Q&A, thanks. And um, anyway, he's standing next to me. We're waiting to go into this room to, you know, go up on stage and do this. And he turns to me and he goes, uh, you know, we shook hands. And I said, I, said, I told him, I said, it's a, what a pleasure to meet you and all that. And he, he leans over to my ear and he goes, Pac-Man fever, I got the fever. But he starts singing the song. <laughs> you know, he, could, that, he knew enough English words to do that. But he, he couldn't have been nicer. And it was a thrill. I've got a, a picture uh, here that we took together and, and he signed it. Uh, and do some little Pac-Man and stuff on there, and I cherish it. It's it's pretty neat. Very nice, very nice guy. He was a very nice guy. That's awesome. So um, many of your songs are included in the uh, rock band lineup. What did you think of that concept when it first came about? I didn't think a lot about it. I, I was glad that they used our stuff. You know, I mean, we're always glad to get our stuff out there. Um, I thought it was, you know, fun. I guess for people to do. You know, I didn't really. Uh, try to do much with it um but uh the guy running it was a nice guy um and probably paid us too much money (laughs) (laughs) but uh but he was a good guy in fact he hasn't sent me a royalty check in several years but i haven't said anything because he paid us so much up front so i figure we're about even probably (laughs) well when you got approached for wreck it ralph um what, what did you think about that and i think it was fantastic that you credited gary as well in the uh music for it yeah, uh, very sad time uh, for me. Uh, Gary did, you know, passed away in 2011. Uh, my mother passed away the same year. It was a tough, tough year. Um, and uh, I got a call one day, and the guy says, "Hi, I'm Tom McDougall. I'm with Disney. I, I'm music uh, director at Disney, and we have a a, a movie coming out called Wreck It Ralph, and uh, we have this song that we would like." you guys to do if you would do it and uh i'm thinking yeah no i don't want to do a disney movie you know yeah um he said they were gonna have uh somebody in a movie do it i don't some character but it didn't work out and then tom said i thought about you guys and i thought wait a minute we should have you know we should have you guys do it plus it would help with promoting the, the movie and everything so um they sent me, uh, there was a, a guy that had already written the song and did a little demo. And he said, I'm going to send you this and listen to it and tell me, you know, whatever. So I got it. And of course, we we worked on it and changed some of the lyrics and changed, you know, made changes to it and everything. And so they sent their uh, producer in uh, to work with me on the production of it. And uh, so we, we did it. And uh, I think it came out really good. I thought it sounded pretty good. And, and I wanted to... Uh, you know, as you say, I wanted to include Gary. And so what we did is we, in Pac-Man Fever, there's a, a spot where he, he goes, huh, you know, on a guitar. I think it's yeah. a guitar. So we took that little hot and we put it in uh, Wreck-It Ralph. So he's he's in that record. Well, I think uh, Wreck-It Ralph was one of the films where they really got it right. Um, the kind of having Walter Day references in there and all the kind of history of arcades and you guys, you know, they seem to get all the references correct. Yeah, poor Walter. They really, I think they really screwed him. I mean, it's obvious that he's the guy. Yeah, it is. And they didn't pay him anything. I mean, that's, and you know, Walter, obviously you've you've met Walter. Oh, yeah, yeah, we've had him on the cast. uh, 
He's excellent. And he's, uh, he's just the nicest man. Just, just such a nice hearted man. I, uh, you know, he's become a very good friend. Um, uh, just like, uh, 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 Billy's, you know, become a, a very good friend. I, I hate seeing Billy Mitchell, you know, I hate seeing what's happened to him. It's, it's really been unfair. I think. Yeah, we, uh, we've tried to uh, report evenly on it and kind of wait till facts come out and all of this stuff, you know. I mean, I, I've worked a lot of shows with Billy, got to know him really well, and I tell you, he's he is a very nice man. He is not the kind of person that would uh, do something like, you know, be a, a, a cheater. I just don't believe that. Uh, he does have, you know, in the movie, he had kind of made, you know, he kind of became a character in the movie. And he kind of has a character thing when he's live, you know, but he behind the scenes is very, uh, is, is, is a very nice guy. I, I remember we were in, uh, I think it was Chicago. We were all having dinner in this restaurant and some kid uh, wanted uh, an autograph. I think he was, uh, had some uh, sort of physical problem or something and his parents were there. And Billy gets up from the table. We're in the middle of the meal, gets up from the table, goes over out of the restaurant to the side of the restaurant and sits down with this kid and scientist stuff talks to him and just spent time with him. And I was, I was amazed by that, you know, that he would do that. And he's just that, that kind of a guy he has a big heart, big heart and very nice to the people around him. He, he always has time for everybody. So it's just really a shame. Uh, I, I think in, especially in this kind of time of social media, the pressure with stuff like that, it, it comes on like 10 or 20 fold as well. It's a, uh, Really, well, Joel, really. You know who Joel West is? Joel is actually a record holder of, uh, I forget what the game is, is but he's, he's Billy's manager. And Joel and I became friends a couple of years ago. And uh, Joel knows everybody in the business and all knows where all the bodies are buried. But the problem was there was some guy in Canada that just has a thing against Billy and has for several years. And then they were able to come up with... Uh, this way of and then jace hall you know he's involved in it and the sad thing is the video that was originally done nobody has it they can't find it hmm. so all they had to go on was was copies that could have easily been doctored and uh and so it's just it's really been it's really been unfair for all this stuff to happen so i i don't know yeah um, it's it's kind of a mad mad thing to look at it retro as well, kind of, the, you know, something that happened so many years ago and people are still investigating it and still, you know. But, uh, yeah, nobody's done more for the business, I think, than Walter Day. And, and of course, Billy, the two of them. They've done a lot uh, for Retro, and um, I, I love them. They're great. They're great guys and great friends. You know who Richie Knuckles is? Yeah, yeah. Richie's another good friend. I love Richie, and uh, we've done some stuff. To, in fact, he recorded our song, <clears throat> some kind of a, crazy version that he did with his some friends or whatever but it was cool but i love richie he's a great guy those three guys are really good friends i love them well recently have you seen a kind of increase in nostalgia and more interest in your tunes in recent years oh yeah it's it's nuts we had uh right before christmas um two big tv shows here and i won't be able to remember the names uh family guy was one of them and uh, i think it was south park South Park, yeah, those two shows. They uh, paid us a good deal of money to use the the song in there, and uh, uh, and the and and the video game places are just popping up everywhere all of a sudden. I mean, I have uh, Google alerts for stuff, keep track of our stuff and what's going on, and I mean they're just coming up everywhere. In fact, we're about to release a T-shirt line 
and I wanted to mention it to you guys. Um, and it's going to be T-shirts. Uh, it's going to have uh, the album on the front, you know, what's going to have the screen, the Pac-Man screen. And then we're going to include some of the lyrics. Like one of them will be, I got a pocket full of quarters headed to the arcade. That would be underneath the, the screen uh, Pac-Man machine thing on the T-shirt. And But we're going to do several of them with different lyrics. And, and then we're going to do some with uh, promotion pictures. But, uh, yeah, people are, are um, I've got friends who have opened arcades, and they're doing very well with them. Uh, and it's just become huge. I mean, it's, I, I mean, I, I don't know how long it'll last, but it is, uh, it's, it's huge. And we're getting a lot of airplay now and satellite radio and regular radio. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, picking up. It's kind of neat, kind of fun. That's uh, really good to hear because obviously we're a massive retro game and retro enthusiasts. So that's great to hear that it's kind of still, you know, happening on the other side of the pond as well. So are your albums still available and where can our listeners, uh, kind of get a hold of them, listen to them, buy them? Uh, iTunes. Uh, and, and there are also, I mean, YouTube, there's, everything is up on YouTube, yeah. you know, so you can hear pretty much what you want. Uh, and you know, we did a new song called, um, old school games and, but we're going to redo it. We're going to redo a second version. Uh, it, I, I just want to redo it. I, I, I want to do it a different way and that hopefully will get released in the next couple of months. And, uh, and we got, you know, some other things happening, uh, some merchandising things or whatever, but uh, at the moment that's kind of what's going on. But yeah, we you never know who's gonna. Uh, the song's been uh, they've used it on the Tonight Show. They've used it uh, uh, on uh, the Goldbergs, which is a big '80s show, TV show here. Yeah, we have that over here as well. That's on every day. <laughs> oh, you guys see this? I forget that. You know, I guess you see everything we see now. Yeah, it's, it's not like it was back then, was it? <laughs> like, where yeah, we no regional programming, yeah. But no, we get it all now. So yeah, the Goldbergs is on every day. <laughs> Do you guys have Netflix and stuff like that over there? Yeah, yeah, we have it all. Yeah, yeah Amazon on phones, Prime. Amazon. Oh, okay. So you got to see, uh, uh, you get to see all those shows, you know, uh, Breaking Bad and all that stuff. Yeah, we get them all. We get, uh, you know, like The Walking Dead and everything. We we now just get it a day later. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we had a. Uh, there was a show, uh, some show. It was a big show on cable. These two guys. I can't think of the name of the show. My my granddaughter watched it a lot. Um, they were uh, something about angels and stuff, and they were driving around in a cool car and stuff. Anyway, they did a show, and it was called Pac Man Fever. The show. Oh <laughs> was really? Like, was it yeah, supernatural? Yeah, I mean, they didn't play the they didn't play the song because they didn't want to have to to pay the licensing fee. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we're showing up in a lot of places now, and it's uh, you know it's kind of exciting. I mean, we've really become a part of pop culture, and. Um, uh, and that that's that's fine with me. I enjoy it. People like to meet meet me and talk, and I like to share the stories. And you know, it's like people will come up, and that was such a uh, a time that was so ingrained in their in their minds. A certain age group, you know, that went through that, and uh, you know, they just want to talk about, oh yeah, you know, we 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 met during that time and your song. We uh, I remember we had uh, Casey Kasem doing his top forty American top forty countdown show. He had. Uh, a thing he would do every week uh, where it was a, some kind of uh, request thing with people. And this girl said that she had met some guy in an arcade and they split up and she doesn't know where he is, but wherever he is, I'm dedicating this song. And it was our song, uh, long distance dedication. That's what they called it. And usually those songs were like ballads, you know? And so it was so funny to hear, <laughs> hear that on there. But uh, I think it just, you know, it's kind of one of those things where people that time period, 
you know, we just kind of represent, you know, tied in with the video game thing. And people just, uh, they love to live in, you know, they love to live their past. And they got money now to do it. Well, thank you so much, Jerry, for talking to us today. We'd like to thank you and Gary for just making some fantastic music. Well, thank you for uh, for having me on the show. I enjoyed it and, and love talking to you guys. 